As we remain standing, let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning. We thank you that you do work within us. We thank you that it's not our work, but yours. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, open our hearts, that we might know you more this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A helpful method to use in Bible study, as I have mentioned many times, and to be quite honest, we'll mention many, many more, is to look for repeated words. These words can often give you a sense of what it is that the author is trying to teach or to emphasize. In our series in Philippians, we've been looking at how to live a life worthy of the gospel. Chapters 2 repeated theme or emphasis, we could say, was that the answer to that question is Christ-like humility, a willingness to follow the example and empowering of the Lord to lay down ourselves, our self-interest, all for the sake of others. Paul goes so far as to provide examples of godly men who were living this out in their midst, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now looking beyond chapter 2, we may have noticed, I hope we have noticed, how consistently Paul speaks of the joy of following Jesus. Over and over again, we read about joy and the idea of rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, that's how our passage this morning began, wasn't it? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. See, Paul knew that joy is a powerful thing, and it is an absolute gift from our Father. And it's a necessary gift. Because as Paul knows, we face constant temptation to find our joy and our fulfillment in other things. And that's the issue that he addresses head on in chapter 3. And the conclusion that he comes to is that we rejoice in the Lord because frankly there is nothing better than knowing Jesus. Nothing. To begin our time this morning, let's take a couple minutes and look at the false gospels that Paul is addressing in our passage, because just as in our time, the Philippian church was hearing a lot of conflicting messages as to what it is to, to be a Christian, what, it, what you had to do, what it looked like following Jesus. What was the center of it all? On one hand, you have Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus preaching the pure word of God, constantly pointing their people back to Jesus. At the same time, they're hearing from another group. And their message would have been something like, well, yeah, of course you got to know Jesus. But you need more than Jesus. You need the Jesus plus plan. That's what verse 2 
refers to. Paul writes, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's probably not a verse we're going to be putting on a plaque anytime soon. Seems like some harsh words. What's Paul doing with these? Well, he's actually taking common Jewish critiques of Gentiles and turning them around on this group that's attempting to pull the Philippian church away from the gospel with this Jesus plus plan. You see, a religious Jew of that time often referred to Gentiles as dogs because Gentiles didn't keep kosher. They would eat anything just like a dog. And Gentiles were evildoers because they did not follow the law. To be holy is to follow the law. And not just the law, but all the traditions that have been placed around the law. And then in his third comment, Paul is making a play on words that admittedly is kind of lost on us. Because I'm I'm assuming here that we don't have a lot of speakers of ancient Greek in in the room. But the Philippians, his original audience, they would have gotten this right away. He talks about mutilators of the flesh. And the word mutilate, katatome, it rhymes with the Greek word for circumcision, paratome. So he's doing a play on words here. And he's doing it because the group that he's referring to is teaching that to truly follow Jesus, you needed to be circumcised. You needed to, as Paul states, mutilate the flesh. And so Paul is taking these common Jewish attacks on Gentiles, and he says, actually, friends, you Jesus plus plan folks, you're the ones who are acting as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators because you are trying to add burdens where they are not warranted. They're trying to say you need Jesus, but you need to stay kosher. You need to keep the law and the traditions, and you need to be circumcised. You need all of that plus Jesus. The result is that you're downgrading Jesus. It's essentially saying that he is not enough. And the truth is, It's really tempting to believe that. Because deep down, we want our lives to be about the things that we do. The things that we accomplish. Guys, if you know me at all, you know I'm a rule follower. I like my structures. I like my systems, my steps, my boxes to check off. It's like Christmas morning for me when I get to check the box. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. But they become absolutely deadly when we make them the equivalent of Jesus. When my plan, my steps for following the Lord become the thing that redeems me, well, I'm doing to myself exactly what this false group of teachers, this group of false teachers, is attempting to do to the Philippians. And of course, we don't articulate it this way. We don't sit down and say, I'm doing all these things, so Jesus won't be that important. 
but it's how we function. It's underneath a lot of our behavior. It's so tempting. Because if following Jesus is about the steps that I take, if it's about the things that I do, you know what I don't need anymore? Faith. Because it's about the things I can see. You don't need faith for that. And that seems like such a better way. It seems like a, an easier path forward because faith seems to waver, doesn't it? There's days where we wake up and we might be doubting. And so what does it all mean? And so if my righteousness and my holiness and my worthiness is based on all the things that I can see and do, it seems far more stable. The problem, of course, though, is that we aren't holy. And building our life with Christ on the rules that I keep is like building a house on sand. It will one day come down. And since I become more and more important under that plan, the result of the Jesus plus plan is that it turns into, over time, the just plus plan. Jesus is diminished day by day. So what are those extra burdens that we're placing on ourselves? What are those things that we have in our lives that might actually be hindering our life with Christ. Now, when I was younger, I believed that I had to pray the exact right words at the exact right time of day, or my prayer didn't work. Guess what that did to my prayer life? It wasn't good. It was a burden that was unnecessary. Or when we pray, when we worship, when we read Scripture, do I have to feel just the right thing? Or then it's not actually worth it? What about that time I read the Bible and it was like, I, I don't know what to do with that. Was that worth my time? Yes. But we can make having that experience actually a burden. What are the barriers that we place around the church? What are our modern equivalents to keeping kosher and being circumcised before we'll ever let you in here? You Got to look and act the part, don't you? Don't you bring in your unruly loud children. This is a place of respect. We worship God quietly. Don't bring your questions in here. This is a place of obedience. We listen, we don't question. What are the cultural beliefs that we have taken on and made equivalent to the gospel? How about one of my favorites? God helps those who help themselves. You want to have the good life? Go make it happen. Never mind the fact that our idea of the good life rarely looks at all like Jesus's. What about, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but he's my way. It doesn't have to be yours. You can find your own way. There's many ways to God. 
Or how about in this time and place? And I say this admittedly with a bit of fear and trembling. You're not really a Christian unless you've been vaccinated. Or you're not really a Christian unless you haven't been. All of these things that we add to faith in Christ as if they are Jesus himself. And some of them are good things. But we turn them into God things and they become burdens and idols in our lives that will eventually destroy our faith. And so these are questions we want to ask ourselves. What are these things that I am clinging to? What are these things that I am holding on to as if they, them, they themselves will redeem me? Because it's so tempting to fall into these pitfalls. It seems to make life so much easier. How do we avoid them? Because they are pitfalls. How do we stay on that narrow road to use the image that Christ himself uses? Well, verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the first antidote to falling under the sway of any false gospel is to see what Paul teaches here, that life with Christ is not primarily about the outside, but the inside. That circumcision, the Old Testament sign of belonging to the people of God, is now not a sign in the flesh, but of the heart. That by the Holy Spirit, we have a heart that is so changed that we stop putting trust in our flesh, in our outward actions and abilities, but we start trusting in Christ himself. We are those, Paul says, who put no confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. We could translate this word glory as boast. We like boasting, don't we? I do. I love it. Just ask me sometime. I'll tell you all about how great I am. The Christian is the one who boasts in Jesus. We boast in the Lord. We make much of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is nothing better than knowing him. Nothing. He is where our holiness, our redemption, our righteousness, all of it is found. And Paul is the perfect guy to teach us this. Why? He's lived both lives. He's interacting with a group that's trying to add all these things to the gospel to make them necessary for redemption. It's the same general position that Paul himself once had. He's been where these folks have been. He knows the problem they're creating. And so to defend the church in Philippi, Paul says, you want to make life all about the things you've done for God? You want to make it all about our resume? Here's mine. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's basically saying, I've accomplished all that you require and then some. Paul's the man. 
He's the number one overall draft pick that changes your franchise forever. He's the guy the company hires to go from just doing well to global domination. That's how good this guy is. And you know what? The great Paul learned and teaches, you know what? Didn't matter. It did not matter. But whatever gain I had, he writes, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All his abilities, all his gifts, all his actions, they are nothing compared to Jesus. It's one of the things I love about how Jesus works. He puts people in situations that they can speak to. What I mean is that I love you folks that that can say, like, I've always known Jesus from the time I was this big until however old I am now. I've always known him. I'm kind of jealous of you all. At the same time, I love that there are people who come to faith later in life. Like Paul. So that the Lord can speak through them. Paul gets to speak to a group that he was a part of. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And now he gets to tell them, guess what, guys? It's empty. Because I've been there. I know. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. For his sake, Paul continues, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All that we truly desire, Paul says, is found not in us, but in Jesus. A worthy heart, it is the gift of God. Faithful living, it is empowered by Him, by His Spirit. Joy in life and hope for eternity, only found in Christ. Paul was the man. He was doing all things well, and then one day Jesus broke into his life and showed him just how blind he was. He thought he had the world, but he had nothing because he didn't have Jesus. There is simply nothing better than knowing Jesus, and so in him we boast. Boasting about Jesus, that's that antidote to all the false gospels. Paul here speaks of knowing Jesus such that he might attain resurrection of the dead, meaning eternal life. But make no mistake, friends, Paul's view isn't just about this glorious life to come but how Jesus makes life better here and now. He speaks of knowing him, of knowing the power of his resurrection. 
Meaning that knowing of Christ, make, knowing Christ makes us new. To be resurrected is to put to death all that which needs to die and being reborn in Jesus, being given his heart and his eyes. That isn't about eternity alone, but right here and right now. That we do live a more righteous life little by little. We do live a more loving life little by little because of his power in us. Notice that he did not say anything about the comfort of our life, only that it is better in Christ. In fact, he says the opposite, doesn't he? He highlights suffering. It's not usually my go-to when I'm evangelizing, but there it is. The wonderful thing about knowing Jesus is that he helps us to appreciate this world that we have around us. One of the concerns I've heard from non-Christians and and Christians as well is that if life is about Jesus, what does it mean for my life now? I have a good friend who always comes to mind when I talk about this. He's a deeply passionate believer now. (laughs) He wasn't when I first met him. One of the things he said to me, gosh, it was days before Christ opened his eyes. He said, my problem with following Jesus is that if I go in for him, I got to go all in. All of life needs to be about Jesus, and so that means I can't do the things I like. No sports, no fishing, no woodworking, all my hobbies gone, because I got to spend all my time with Jesus, don't I? Sounds kind of silly when we say it, but guess what? A lot of people feel that way. The truth is, though, that life here and now doesn't become pointless when we meet Jesus. It's not that we put all these things aside. It's that he actually helps them and us enjoy them more. He even shows us how he uses these things to witness to himself, to us and to others. We experience these things more fully. Hearing beautiful music, Mozart or something. I'm wondering, how could something that beautiful ever be written? Reading a wonderful story and being gripped by it. Watching a a world-class athlete doing things with their body that previous generations would have said were impossible. Watching a person build something or write computer code, whatever it might be. When we know Jesus, we look at these things and we think, what must God be like that he could create someone to do that? Stumbled on a picture last night on Twitter. It's like the one helpful thing I've done on Twitter in my life. It was this castle in Germany surrounded by mountains and beautiful trees and a sunset. And I'm not really a, a, a nature sort of guy, but I saw it and was just so overwhelming. Like, what must God be like that he did that? Life doesn't get diminished in Jesus. It gets more full. We enjoy these things rightly. We praise God because of the Marvels that he works, everything from medical and scientific marvels to 
glorious works of art, everything in between. It doesn't become less, it becomes more. And so we rejoice. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord, friends. Have the joy of Christ in this life. We gain that joy when we gain the heart and mind of Christ as we worship Him. Worship changes us. Whatever it is we worship, it changes us. If we worship money, we're going to be more greedy. If we worship ourselves, we're going to be more arrogant and prideful. If we worship Jesus, we become more like Jesus. It changes us. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. My far less poetic summary, worship changes us. Archbishop Temple was more wordy than me. Amazing to think about, I know. Friends, all that is good and pleasing in this world, it finds its fullness in Jesus. And so we have faith in him. We rejoice in him that we might know him, that we might become like him. We might share in all that he has, the joys, the triumphs, even the sufferings. All for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Worship is the umbrella that protects us from the downpour of all the false teaching that surrounds us. It is the thing that changes our hearts so that life becomes about him. And so, as we seek our righteousness in him, as we seek to make much of Jesus in all that we do, even our actions throughout the day become acts of worship. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says it over and over again. He's almost apologetic for his repetition. But it is worth repeating over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord, for he is what life is all about. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do rejoice in you. We praise you, Jesus. For you are worthy of all glory and praise and honor. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would form us in this worship, that we might be more like Jesus. That you would change us so that all our acts would be about him. Our hobbies, our work, whatever it might be, would bring glory to him. That his name might be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.